But you know, I love, I love the, the way that we get ready for Christmas, all the, the Christmas traditions, the lights and the cookies especially. You know, uh, uh, one of my favorite uh, Christmas traditions is uh, movies. I love Christmas movies. I have a list of movies I have to watch for it to be Christmas. Um, every Christmas season, uh, uh, I watch them all. And you know, the more times that I watch the movie Christmas Vacation the more I appreciate Clark Griswold. Yeah. I really, I really relate to that guy. He's just trying to do right by his family. And sure, sometimes he sets standards that no family activity can live up to. But that's all part of the experience. He's hilarious. It's a great movie and so quotable. In fact, I put more quotes in this sermon than I probably should have. At times, they really don't fit or belong. But I relate to Clark, and maybe you do too, uh, because sometimes Christmas brings out the best and the worst in us. We may not have a long list of presents that we want anymore, uh, but like Clark, we have a list of things we want to hear, you know, or see or do. Uh, We want to hear certain songs, or we don't want to hear those songs before Thanksgiving. Uh, Some folks have a list of season's greetings. They want to hear others say, or they really don't want to hear others say. We want to see lots of Christmas lights, but not too gaudy. We want to do all the parties, but not get too socially exhausted. We've all got a little Clark Griswold in us. We want the biggest tree there is, or an embarrassing number of presents under that tree, or we want to be seen as a success, but we tell ourselves it's, it's not for us, it's for the kids. We all have some selfishness in us that we'd rather not acknowledge. Selfishness that we'd rather call servanthood. That's what we're going to look at today. I think it's crystallized in the character of Clark Griswold, but it's in all of us. As we think about Jesus's incarnation and how he came to save us from our sin, I want us to look at at one particular kind of sin. You see, the worst sin in our lives may not be the sin we're sorry for, but the sin we're proud of. As Christians, that's some of the most pernicious sin that we ever have to face up to, the the sin that we identify as virtue. We're not alone in that, not by a long shot. Our, Our scripture passage today was written to a congregation a lot like ours, you know, in another time and another place. And it speaks to the obvious kinds of selfishness, and to the the kind that that we bring out especially at the holidays. You see, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi speaks to all the Christian Clark Griswolds in the world and tells them and us to stop dressing up our own selfishness as anything other than it really is. 
So we're going we're gonna to work through this scripture, and then we're going to look at, uh, at, at a, a Christmas carol. The first verse we're going to look at is Philippians 1.27. It says, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. You see, it's not about what we want or what might be acceptable or, or, or what we can get away with. Uh, hey, look, kids, a deer. Uh, the, the standard is the gospel of Christ, which this passage and today's Christmas carol communicates perfectly. Uh, so so this, this passage goes on and says, So that whether I come and see you or am absent and hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel. You see, this, this letter isn't to one person. It's a letter to a congregation. Uh, they and we um, don't get evaluated individually. It's a group project. You can't be a Christian by yourself. That's a big reason that confronting our selfishness in all of its forms is so important. We can't be a true community if we don't do that. We can't be of one spirit and one mind without taking that step. You see, like so many things in the faith, it's not about doing one particular thing. Uh, it's about cutting out all the harmful and unnecessary things until we're left with only the essentials, with only Christ. Verse 2, 3 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. See, you can do a lot of good things for selfish reasons. But Philippians 2, 3 calls us to question our motivations for everything that we do. It's not enough to be able to justify that what you're doing is right. You know, everyone can always figure out a way to do that. We have to look even deeper at our, our motivations and identity. We have to see where the selfish ambitions and, and ego are and name them. Now, this doesn't give us a pass on doing good things, by the way. You can't say, I would be doing that, but I'd be doing it for the wrong reason, so I'm just going to do nothing instead. Now, you've got to look at your heart and confess your selfish reasons to God and, I think, to a friend. And then find a way to do the good thing without the ambition and conceit. We're tricky, though, because we can take anything and make it about ourselves, can't we? We can do the work and see where the selfishness is and confess it and do it differently, but then sprain our shoulders from patting ourselves on the back for how far we've come. We don't ever stop being sinners, ever. We just get sneakier at it. But one surefire way, way to at least fake it until we make it is uh, to go on with this verse, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, 
regard others as better than yourselves. Not just say they are. Regard. Regard's a much stronger word than that. Regard is to really see, to, to notice. To notice that others are better than yourself. Paul goes on, let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Those you know in the church and the community, and those you don't know and will never know in the wider world. And, and, and here's where Paul brings it home. Verse 5, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. The same mind. What kind of mind is Paul talking about? Does that mean we can have, you know, some sort of divine mind? No. To show us, Paul quotes one of the oldest hymns in the church. Last week was pretty old. It was like over a thousand years old. This one's even older. In Philippians, it says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited but emptied himself. Emptied himself. Jesus emptied himself of all his godness. Not because he had to, but because he chose to. For us. He emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being Found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, even with with all the the cool stuff up, we can't separate Jesus' birth from his death. It's the whole point of his incarnation. That's why we're, we're singing, What Child Is This?, as it was originally penned today in, in, in our hymnal, uh, they got it down to one page, which is a noble thing to do, but to do it, they made it so we sing the same refrain every time, and they cut out some of the the death stuff. So we're going to walk through the carol next. You remember the, the opening. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping. Uh, this carol was written in 1865, and in 1865, it was as normal to start out with a rhetorical question as it was in 1995 to feature Gregorian chants. Remember all those songs of Gregorian chants? Yeah. But it sure does sound confusing to us sometimes, right? Uh, you know, you, you read this thing, and do they really not know what child this is? Starts out with a rhetorical question and then answers it. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste to bring him Laud, the babe, the son of Mary. All right, two things about this, uh, real quick. And I hope you see why we started out with Philippians 2 today. Uh, when it tells us that Jesus emptied himself of everything godlike to be born, we see that in the manger. You know, if, if the first uh, uh, Christmas took place at the Griswold's house, and not in Bethlehem, Jesus would have been born in the RV parked on the street (laughs) with Cousin Eddie looking over and that dog. Jesus is just as much the son of Mary as he is the son of God. 
anything about that? He's just as much the son of Mary as he is the son of God. We're so used to that idea that it kind of loses its impact. But, but if we really got that, if, if we really got that, if I woke up with my head sewn to the carpet, I wouldn't be any more surprised than I am right now if we really got that. Why lies he in such mean a state where ox and ass are feeding? Just a personal note, my brother Rob would always point to that line in the hymnal on Christmas Eve and sing it really loudly. (laughs) (laughs) This first uh, stanza asks, who is this? But this one asks an even deeper question. Why? Why is the incarnate word of God lying in a feeding trough in a barn surrounded by animals? Why? Why lies he in such mean a state where ox and ass are feeding? Good Christian fear. For sinners here, the silent word is pleading. Our, our, our passage in Philippians turns to the same word, uh, fear. After the hymn that Paul quotes about Jesus' emptying and suffering on the cross, he says in 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, work out your own salvation with fear. And trembling. This doesn't mean you have to make it work. You know, you don't and can't save yourself. But but, but work it out. Live it out. Make your choices knowing that it is real. Not casually, but with fear and trembling knowing what it cost God, knowing what lengths God took to give it to you. You know, we we don't approach the manger flippantly because even there, the silent word is pleading. That's an amazing line, too. Jesus doesn't have to say anything to get the message across when you know who he is and why he's there. But he does anyway. He will speak and teach for three years, and then his pleading for us will find its fulfillment on the cross. Back to what child is this? Nails, spear, shall pierce him through. The cross be born for me, for you. Jesus was born in order to go to the cross to save us from our sin. The sin that separates us from God, from each other, and from our true selves. Not just the sins we're sorry for. Not just the sins that are obvious to us and to everyone else. Even more than those, Jesus was born and died and rose again to save us from those sins that we don't think are sins at all. We think they're good. We think they're rights. We think 
that's what makes people good and strong and worth knowing. Sins like uh, insisting on your own way. Sins like certainty and pride and superiority. Sins like not trusting God. Even not trusting other people. The sin of trying to be God. The sin of treating every conflict, every disagreement, every difference of opinion as a fight for the soul of the nation. The sin of trying to make this the best Griswold family Christmas there's ever been. Hallelujah, where's the Tylenol? It's not just the things we're sorry for that need redeeming. It's the things we're proud of, too. Sin is just as close to us, maybe even closer, when we're certain we're doing good as when we know we're doing wrong. You see, every part of us needs God's forgiveness. We're, we're called to, to rethink and reframe everything in light of Jesus. You know, not just the things we were kind of thinking about giving away anyway, but the things we would defend with our lives. The previously unquestionable things. I can't tell you what yours are, but I hope you'll think and pray about it. And, and, and maybe, maybe what will help you figure out what, what your thing is, is when whatever your cousin Eddie is shows up in your driveway and ruins your Christmas. Maybe what you need is something like that to show you just how much your ego and pride have set the course of your life and not Jesus. So uh, here's what I hope you get for Christmas. And it's not the jam of the month club, the gift that keeps giving all year. <laughs> what am I up to now? Is that up to eight? I hope you get the gifts that help you see that you need Jesus just as much and maybe even more when you feel sure of yourself as when you don't. I hope you get experiences that help you empty yourself of yourself. I'll go first. I hope, I hope that a baby cries through both of our Christmas Eve services. <laughs> I do. I hope that happens and that I and you too, that, that, that we have to face, face to face, our selfish desires for everything to be the way that we want it to be all the time. 
for us to see that this isn't a performance. This is a gathering of God's people. And when that happens, that that we would all not only refrain from giving anyone the stink eye or the stone face, but truly offer kind and loving smiles. Because in that moment, our illusions about ourselves and the perfect family Christmas are shattered. I hope you get stuck in traffic. And then realize that you're not stuck in traffic. You are traffic. (laughs) And so is everyone else. And in that horrible moment, you realize that we're all just one human family. And no one is more important than anyone else. I hope that things get bad enough at your Christmas dinner that you shout along with Clark, worse, how can they get any worse? Look around you, we're at the threshold of hell. (laughs) And then you see clearly that the only reason it seems like that is because of your expectations. I hope your uncle brings up his ridiculous politics at Christmas dinner. (laughs) And that you take the time to hear him and figure out what makes him tick and how if you had his life, you'd probably be the same way. And then that you explain what you believe without arguing, without changing the subject, because you're not the MC. You're just another person at that table, just like him. I hope that every time something goes wrong, it turns into a mirror that lets you see yourself clearly. I hope that everything isn't resolved in 90 minutes. And that you have to look to the only place you'll ever truly find resolution. The manger and the cross. What you'll see there is God emptying God's self of all of his power. And finding that being empty is central to what it means to be God and to be human. I hope that you get goaded and frustrated enough to see that all the things you've been filling your soul with and identifying as you aren't you at all. The power, the respect, the money, the hopes and dreams, even the love of family and friends, they're not you. And that you empty them all out and experience the beauty and the holy fear of just being empty before God.
That's how we come to this table. Empty. And we don't eat until we're full. We take one little bite, one little sip. Because there's so much more to faith than feeling like we got what we needed. Let's pray. God, help us to have the same mind that was in Jesus Christ. To empty ourselves. To see that that emptiness is what it means to be in your image. In Jesus' name we pray.